Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2, please. 2 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. Um, and I'm going to be paraphrasing the story, most of it, because it just, for, for the ground that I want to cover, it, we would take a long time if I read through all of it. So we're going we're gonna to read the first seven verses, and we'll pray, and then I'm going to paraphrase a little bit and then make some points, um, and then we'll worship, we'll take communion, and worship God a little bit more, and then eat together. This is verses 1 through 7. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, <clears throat> And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron, and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. It's about time. If you've been with us through the life of David, you know you might feel a sigh of relief yourself. It's been a long time for David. And when they told David it was, um, that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will be good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Let's pray and then we'll keep going. Lord, I thank you for um, being here with us today. I really sense your presence, and boy, I needed to be with you. There's something so special about being together with, um, with other followers of you, sharing in some really special things, sharing in our devotion to you as we worship you, sharing in listening to your voice as we go through the Bible, sharing um, each other's ups and downs, sharing each other's praises. And Lord, uh, we want to give special thanks that you have healed Liz from cancer and we give you glory and praise. Thank you, God. Uh, and thank you for the honor that we have gotten as a church to be able to go through this with her and her family. We're just so grateful so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today through the life of David, Lord, that you would give us insight and imagination into what's been going on, Lord, and that you would fill us with your spirit and you'd speak to us through the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, the story goes on here, although David has now finally been anointed, this is, this is two of three anointings that we find that David had, he's finally been anointed king of, of Judah, and yet a lot more things start happening. If you were to keep reading, it wasn't, in, it, it, nothing comes easy for David. Nothing is easy. Um, he's launched right into a divided situation. Even though he has become king of Judah, Abner, this, if you were to keep reading, you would learn that Abner, Saul's commander, Saul's five-star general, so to speak, 
ambitiously takes Saul's remaining child, a man named Ishbosheth in his 40s, and he makes him king over Israel. So right away there's this divided situation going on. You've got David and Judah, and you've got Ishbosheth um, leading Israel up in the north, really under, under Abner. Uh, or Abner is really the one driving, driving all of this. And some brutal things begin to happen. If you were to keep reading, you would learn that Joab and Abner, they meet with their armies at the pool of, of um, well, shoot, Gilead? Is that what it is? I think it is. Gibeon. Okay, I knew it started with a B, G. At the pool of, Gib, of Gibeon, and they meet both on each side, and they have like this contest. They say, hey, um, we'll send our 12 best guys. You send your 12 best guys and let them compete. Let them um, fight in a skilled kind of warfare. Back then, like in the medieval times, like jousting, sport and warfare, there's a very blurry line in between those two things. <laughs> so they get together and the men fight and all 24 of them die. They all thrust each other through. And because of that, that ensues this major war between Joab, that's David's five-star general, and Abner, that's Saul, or Saul's son's Ishbosheth's five-star general. <clears throat> and they have this major, major war in which David's men, Joab's men, win. But in the midst of it, this blood feud begins to happen because Joab's brother, um, uh, a man named um, Esahel, is it Abishai or Esahel? I, think, I don't know how to say it. But he's fast and he, he sees Abner and he runs right at him. He's like, I'm going to take care of their general right now. And it says that he didn't turn to the, to the right or to the left. In other words, he didn't care about what else was going on in the battle. He just found Abner and he thought, I'm going to end this thing right now. I'll cut the head off the snake and this will be, be done. And he's chasing out. He uses his athleticism to chase after Abner. Abner warns him a few times, you don't want to do this, kid. Like, go somewhere else. Go have a victory somewhere else and, and take the spoils and brag about it. But Abner, uh, Asahel wouldn't hear any of it. He's going right for Abner. Abner warns him again. And Asahel runs at Abner. And Abner takes the, with this incredible military move, he's this kind of seasoned warrior. He takes the butt of his of his staff, of his spear, not the pointy end of the spear, but the butt of the spear, and rams it through Asahel to where the Bible records that the butt of it is so powerful, comes through his back. Anybody ever tells you that the Bible is boring has clearly not read the Bible. <clears throat> I, I, at one point, um, had mentioned, I think when I was telling the story, I had said, if the Bible was made into a movie it would be R-rated. And I got in so much trouble for that comment. This guy took me out to coffee and was like, no, it's not. And I was like, have you read the Bible? It's super violent. I mean, like, it's detailed. Like, goes through and out the other. Anyways. So, the problem is, though, before he does this, Abner says, this is the reason he really wanted Asahel not to do this. He said, if I kill you, I'll have to deal with your brother Joab for the rest of my life. Your brother Joab will feel, and it's true, he would feel duty-bound to spill the blood of the person that killed someone of his own family. And sure enough, Joab and um, his other brother, 
They follow Abner. They chase down this army. They will not relent and will not stop pursuing him until finally Abner meets up with more um, troops from the house of Benjamin and they kind of make a final stand and everyone's exhausted and Abner cries out to Joab and he says, look, will the sword devour forever? Let's just, let's call this a day. You know, those who run, those who live and run away live to fight another day. Let's, let's do this. And Joab says, fine, good call, but I want you to know something. I would not have stopped unless you said that. Like he wants him to know, I'm committed to killing you. So starts this big feud between the house of David and the house of Saul. Meanwhile, Abner goes back <clears throat> to Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth foolishly insults Abner. He says to Abner one day, he says, "Hey, you know my 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 dad's concubine. That's a a, a woman besides their wife that they would was basically there for sexual relations." He says to. Uh, to Abner, he says, how come you're sleeping with her? He just, and Abner's like, what, what are you, why are you saying that? <laughs> I have done so much for you. I've put my career on the line. I've made you, I've done so, why are you, why are you saying things like this? And because of that, because of the lack of kindness, in fact, we'll get to this word, Abner says, I've shown you kindness. That's a theological word. It's the word chesed in the Hebrew, and we'll get into that in a second, but he says, because I've shown you kindness, loving kindness, and now you betray me like this, so Abner turns. He finally sees the cruelty of Ishbosheth and the kindness of David, and he turns, and he goes to the 12 tribes of Israel, and he rallies them, and he says, let's go over to David's side. So Abner, the guy that anoints Ishbosheth king, now, because he's so deeply wounded and his eyes are open to see how um, unkind this regime is, he turns and he goes to the tribes and he says, let's go to David. And he, he um, barters this meat between David and him saying, look, I'm going to bring the kingdom together under you. David says, absolutely, let's meet. And they do meet and they come to an agreement. But Joab hears of it. And Joab rides out after Abner after they're, they're, they, you know, they meet at Starbucks or wherever. They're in Hebron. And then Abner's leaving. Joab runs out after him and says, wait, wait, I have something to tell you. You forgot to say. And he kills Abner. And David mourns for Abner. So this alliance that was about to happen because of a blood feud, Joab steps in and avenges his brother. David mourns for Abner which was a really smart move. And this sets a really interesting relationship that we'll get into subsequently between David and Joab. A very, very interesting, complicated relationship where David both despises, David both despises, okay, it's just in my head. <laughs> David both despises and needs Joab. He needs him. Joab kind of becomes his cleanup man. He needs him for the dirtier jobs of being a king. Um, and he also despises his character at the same time. And that comes to, comes to a head at the end of David's, at the end of David's reign. So we'll, we'll get into all of that soon. Um, but you know, it's been said, <clears throat> and it can be argued, and I 
think it should be, that David's life, up to this point at least, up to where we're at today, has been mirrored uh, or mirrors the, the life of Israel itself. David's life actually, inter- interestingly, David's life mirrors the national life of Israel. Um, and this is a testament to how folded onto itself the Bible actually is. Um, let me give you some examples. Israel was anointed and saved at the Red Sea crossing when they were taken out of Egypt. And let me, um, well, I'll get to that in a little bit. Right after that, after they were taken out of Egypt, they were plunged into a wilderness experience for 40 years. This was a time of them of being tested. This was a time preparing them for the promised land. Um, I don't know if you've heard the saying, I think it's a great saying where uh, people have said God rescued Israel out of Egypt, but then he wanted to take Egypt out of his people and that's what he used the 40 years in the desert about to kind of purge them or to try to test them to make them ready for the promised land. And when they entered the promised land, it wasn't easy. They then had to conquer the promised land. There was war and there was confusion, but they gradually overpowered and became the prominent force there in the promised land. David has a similar story. David was, anointing, was anointed king designate, if you would, and, um, um, and was freed from, the, uh, from being overlooked by his father, from servitude to his father. Um, you can read, we can read this in 1 Samuel 16. David was very overlooked. And if you compare this with Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Look what God says about Israel. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. That means dedicated to the Lord or chosen to be completely set apart and devoted to God only. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You're favored. I've chosen you to be favored out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now look what he says. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people. It wasn't because you're impressed, you impressed me at all. It wasn't because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you, that's the word chesed, and chose you for you were the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and chesed, steadfast love, with those who love him and keep his commandments for a thousand generations. So in other words, he's saying, look, Israel, it's not because you were impressive. It wasn't because you had some skills that I needed. It wasn't because you were of greater stock than the other people around you. I've chosen you precisely because you were small. You're very underwhelming. You're overlooked. You were defeated by the nation of Israel. And I wanted to show the world what kind of God I am by, by having compassion and steadfast love on you and saving you. And then we fast forward to David's story. David in 1 Samuel 16, <clears throat> when we compare him to Saul especially, Saul, the first king of Israel, was very handsome, came from a prominent family, from a prominent tribe, from a wealthy family, he was handsome, head and shoulders above the rest. He was, what the, he was a person that people 
he would have stood out in a crowd. Everyone would have known when Saul walked into the room. He literally was above everybody else. He had a, he had a powerful force to him. And he was who people would expect to be king. Not David. Not even his own father. You remember the story. Samuel goes to Bethlehem. He brings out Jesse, David's dad. And Jesse brings seven of his sons before him. And the first guy is super impressive. Samuel says in his heart, this is the guy for sure. I mean, he's strong, he's handsome, he's, old, he's older and wiser. He's just this, I mean, really impressive looking guy. And God's, you know, this famous thing, this famous line that God said to, to Samuel's heart. He says, don't look at the outward appearance. Don't do that. For man looks at the outward appearance, uh, appearance but I look, at, I look at the heart. I'm looking for a guy whose heart is dedicated, holy, devoted to me. Really interesting. And so they go through six more people. <clears throat> and Jesse doesn't even bring David up. Samuel has to ask, do you have any more sons? Jesse doesn't even say or call for him. He it's like he's absent-minded about David. It's not even a thought. And Jesse says, oh, uh, well, there is the youngest kid, but he's out watching the sheep out in the field. Completely overlooked. Not even a thought. Also in servitude under his dad. And God, or Samuel says, send for him. We're not even going to sit down until that kid gets here. And David comes and the Lord says, that's the one. And he was anointed. He was anointed king. Like I said, king designate, you could say, at that point. But then after that, he's plunged into a wilderness experience. <clears throat> he's on the run from Saul plunged into this wilderness experience, and he is be also being tested. Um, one of the differences between Saul and David was that Saul didn't have a wilderness experience. He was launched right into kingship, and because of that, lost his heart. David had a wilderness experience where he had to learn to depend on God. He had to learn to see God's power and his strength, and he had to learn to come by the kingdom honestly without manipulating it to be so. And so he does. He comes, he comes, he comes, finally comes into his kingdom. He's anointed king of Judah. But then, like Israel, they come into the promised land. David was outside of Israel. Remember, in his wilderness experience, he had to leave Israel. And he was hanging out in Ziklag, which is in the Philistine territory. David comes back into the land of Israel, like um, like Joshua, who came into the land of Israel, and he's anointed king, but yet he still has to conquer it. There's still fight. It's not easy. There's still fighting going on. Like Joshua that had to gradually take over the land, David's kingdom is a gradual kingdom that steadily grows and then finally takes over all the territory of Israel and, as we will see, grows into splendor, into the most glorious kingdom Israel has thus far ever seen. But it was a gradual situation. And finally, in chapter 5, as we'll see next week, he's anointed the third time king over all of Israel. Now, the Bible is super folded in on itself. In other words, and you've heard me say this before, the Bible is a progressive, recursive book, which means it will repeat, like history. History repeats itself. It will repeat, except it will add more mass the more it starts to revolve. It progresses 
as it revolves, as it recurses around. So we call it progressive recursive. Um, and some, if you want to know a really, really nerdy word about this, um, scholars call this recapitulation. Have you heard of that word? Have you heard of that word in the context of theology? Um, it, it can mean different things in the context of a lot of different things. But in theology land, it means that, it basically means a do-over. Um, so David gets to, do, gets to walk through Israel's shoes, except when they made mistakes, he gets to do things right. He gets to be more successful. He gets to conquer. Where Israel failed to um, rid the land of all the, the pagan tribes that God told them to, David will. See, where, where Israel fell short, he will set up an incredible kingdom. And this, scholars will tell you, will go into Jesus. You can actually see that Jesus also um, relives the story of Israel through his life. Think about it with me. Jesus, anointed with the Spirit at his, at his baptism, just like Israel went through the Red Sea. Jesus, if you read in Matthew chapter 4 or Mark, you'll see that the Spirit led him into a wilderness, except instead of 40 days and, or 40 years, his is 40 days and 40 nights. He's in a wilderness experience. He's being tested. He's being proven. He's re-walking through Israel's story. And, and the bigger picture, he's re-walking through mankind's story. This is why Paul calls Jesus the last Adam, meaning he did, he completed the task that Adam failed at. <clears throat> he was led into the wilderness, tested and proved to prove his kingship. He was exiled out of the land through the cross. He was kicked out through the cross, through his death. But he was anointed a second time and exalted through the Spirit in his resurrection and ascension, where he was made king. But now, his followers are still at war. Have you noticed that? We're still, there's still problems, and it's confusing. I mean, if you read uh, 2 Samuel 2, all the way up to chapter 5, it's bloody, it's confusing, it's messy. The war wages on. David becomes king, and yet there's still all of this turmoil going on. And revenge and hatred and blood feuds and all of these things that are happening. And eventually, if you keep reading, it says David's house got stronger and stronger and the house of Saul got weaker and weaker till eventually, through community, David, uh, one of the men of Judah made David king. In other words, they chose, they recognized that they made him king. It, was a, it wasn't a despotic situation. It was a community that anointed him. And the same is true when he became king over Israel. The elders of Israel came and they recognized him and anointed him king. They bestowed that upon him. But in between that time, there was war. It was difficult. There was uh, skilled politics going on, as we're going to see. There was shrewd thinking. There was planning. There was all sorts of stuff happening in between that, in between that time. And finally, we know that on, we believe, Christians believe that Jesus will come back a second time where he will become, he will be, his kingdom will culminate. He will be, in, there will be no more, when Jesus comes back a second time, every tear will be wiped from our eyes. 
everything that we're hoping for will be. But right now, it's important for us to understand we're in a time of great turmoil. And let's take this even a little, well, before I go there, even think back to Adam and Eve in the garden. There they were, the tree of good and evil. It represents in the Bible, I mean, think about progressive, progressive recursive. The tree of, of good and evil represents a choice. Tov and Ra, good and bad, right? And Adam and Eve, you know the story. They were, they were, a lie was planted into their minds. You're incomplete, actually, and God's holding something back from you. And because of that lie, they choose to disobey. And a curse called sin, a spiritual cancer disease that we all struggle with, that we all have, has ensued like a great ripple effect from that point forward. But that's not the, other, that's not the only time the idea of a choice or a fork in the road or a tree revolves back around. For example, when, when the children of Israel are taking out, taken out of uh, Egypt, Moses brings them to Mount Sinai and God cuts covenant with the children of Israel. They're the new Adam, so to speak. And when Joshua leads them into the promised land, right before Joshua dies, at the, beginning of, uh, at the end of Joshua and the beginning of the book of Judges, Joshua gives this speech. It's basically the tree. He says, choose. You're here in this land. Choose. Before him, Moses said the same thing. He said, behold, I call heaven and earth to be a witness against you. I've put before you this day good and evil, life and death. It's the tree all over again. It's revolving back around. Here we are again. It's progressive but recursive. Now there's a covenant. Choose this day. Choose. And he says, choose life. If you choose life, you'll be blessed. If you choose to disobey, you'll be cursed. And he lines out all these things that will happen. Other nations will come and, and take you over and disperse you all, all these other places. Everything will be rough for you. Well, you know, Israel, again, they choose wrong. Joshua tells them, obey God. Don't be, you're, you are called to be a contrast culture in the midst of all the nations. Don't do what they do. Do what God wants. Do they? No. By the end of the book of Judges, they look just like the Canaanite people. And Israel can't even tell the difference between Yahweh and the gods of the Canaanites. They're getting them very confused by the end of Judges. They're treating Yahweh like the Canaanites treat their gods. They chose wrong and they're facing these. So God, here we go, starting again. Samuel comes on the scene. Samuel chapter 7 he brings them and he says, choose, choose, Obey. put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths, choose Yahweh and he'll return to you. Here we are, we're back at the tree. <clears throat> until, and this keeps revolving, keeps revolving, keeps revolving until we come to who Paul calls the final Adam. Do you remember? Jesus. And he's there, there's the final Adam in a garden. And he's on his knees and he's sweating great drops of blood, right? You remember the story? And he articulates in his prayer a choice. Let this cup pass from me. 
I wish there was another way. <laughs> Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but yours be done. You see what Jesus is doing? He's recapitulating. He's, it's the alternate ending. He goes back through and he, by making the right choice, he redeems the wrong choice of mankind and then he's going to die on the cross for, the, for how we chose wrong. He walks back through history from his baptism to his wilderness to his faithful life and now we are at war. Here's the point. We are sometimes caught in the in-between. In fact, I would say we are right now in the in-between. We're in between the already and the not yet. Jesus has become king. Philippians 2 says that God has exalted him above every other name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And yet, we are deeply at war, aren't we not? Yesterday, I went to a funeral for a 21-year-old young man that grew up in my youth group. And you think, gosh, this ought not be. We, or we look in the mirror and we, we're still struggling. We're still wrestling with those same things. Those things that hinder us, that clip our wings, that it's still a messy, we still struggle with anger, resentment, like Joab and Abner. Still got this, I can't forgive you. I'm so hurt by you. I'm still struggling with you. I don't want to be in the same room with certain people. We still, we have these messy relationships in our lives. We experience betrayal or we dole it out. We connive, we manipulate like Joab. We insult the people that are trying to help us. Like Ishbosheth insults Abner, just a below the belt hit. Either we've been insulted that way or we insult that way. Life is just, we're right now, we're in the in between. Jesus is king. But the war goes on. Jesus on the cross was the decisive victory, but not the final victory. Do you understand that? That's very important for us to understand for context. People still get hurt. Disease still takes folks out. Like David, whose kingdom came gradually, so is the kingdom of David or so is the kingdom of the son of David, Jesus. And we're a part of it. And in the meantime, we're at war, and it's bloody, life is confusing, it's messy, people get hurt, there's death, things happen that we can't explain. I mean, that's the nature of war, isn't it? War is just a confusing time. It's chaos. But gradually, slowly but surely, like David, the kingdom of Jesus gets stronger and the, king, uh, and the kingdom of man gets weaker. So, here's what we need to ask ourselves today. 
How does David conduct himself in the in-between? <clears throat> if we're in this in-between stage, which we are, that the, the question is, how do we not just survive, how do we conquer? That's what Jesus has called us to do. You remember what he said to you, what he said to me? He did say that. He said we're more than conquerors. But he also said go into all the world and baptize them, teaching them to obey what I've told you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And he also said, and be of good cheer, through Paul, he said you're more than conquerors. So how do we do it? How do we not just survive, but how do we press forward? Well, let's look at David. First of all, we see in David in our seven verses here that he surrendered. He was, had a surrendered heart. That's what it means when it says David inquired of the Lord. Here's the scene. Saul has just died. The, the, the throne of Israel is vacant. This is what David has been waiting for for years. He's been sleeping on the ground in caves. And finally, this national event, tragic event has happened that leaves the throne vacant and instead of manipulating instead of trying to make it happen instead of craning it says David inquires of the Lord and if you this happens seven David inquires of the Lord I think around seven times if you read his where where the may probably more but where the text explicitly tells us it's seven times and when he inquires of the Lord he's batting a thousand he's always successful it's when he stops inquiring of the Lord that he starts going south. David is a king that inquires of the Lord at least most of the time. <laughs> when he doesn't, it goes bad. One of the downfalls of Saul was that he stopped inquiring of the Lord. And then the Lord stopped talking to him. When he did inquire of the Lord, it was from, not from a surrendered place. And God didn't respond. And so he even manipulated the... Remember the story... He, he manipulated, he hacked death itself. He went to this necromancer, this, this witch that could call people up from the dead, and he calls up Samuel up from the dead. It shows that Saul, he, he won't take no even from God. He's not surrendered. I'm going to find out he's a driven, ambitious, insecure man. Here we have David starting his kingdom like this. I am waiting on you. I'm not going to make a move unless you tell me to. Should I go up? Should I come back? And God tells him to go to Hebron. Hebron, a, a, a very, um, it makes tons of sense. Um, there's a lot of patriarchal history. Ab Abraham bought a land and buried Sarah in Hebron. This is also where he set up his tents in Mamre, where the three uh, visitors from God came and he made, a, made uh, food for them right before they judged Sodom and Gomorrah. That was at Hebron. Um, a lot of history at, he, uh, at Hebron. Also for, the, um, uh, for Joshua, some history. So it made a lot of sense to connect himself to the patriarchs. Also, it was elevated. The term go up to Hebron was literal. It was, it was an elevated position, strategically a great spot. But also the term go up to Hebron has metaphorical significance because it, for David, it's returning into the land of, of Israel. Remember, David's kind of exiled at this point. He's out of Israel, which in the Israelite mind 
If you're out of the promised land, again, the Bible is progressive recursive. Um, The Garden of Eden represented God's presence where mankind was meant to dwell. They were cast east out of Eden when they sinned. The Garden of Eden came back around but then was a, a tabernacle that Moses was to build and they were to move their way west, if you would, back into the tabernacle. There was a movement back in, okay? The tabernacle revolves back around and now becomes the promised land. This is the place where God dwells, where Israel is to be. This is where life is, and exile equals death. Remember? The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They didn't cease to exist. It wasn't an um, empirical or scientific kind of death, as we, as we pre-enlightenment people like, like to try to find Instead, it meant death was away from, you're kicked out of God's presence. Exile equals death. So if we're following this, David is exiled. He's out of the land. He goes back up, up into Israel. Metaphorically, it's a, it's a travel up the mountain of God. Back, it's a resurrection. Only by sacrifice. Do you remember whose sacrifice? David said it in our last chapter. Oops, I'm in Deuteronomy. Let me read it to you. 2 Samuel 1. In his great poem, he says, Your glory, or this is when Saul and, da- Saul and Jonathan died, David writes this song. He says, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa. Let, so a mountaintop was a high place where um, the ancient world used to sacrifice to their gods, including Israel. Um, he says, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings... For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. And here he starts talking about, he starts speaking Leviticus 16 language, Yom Kippur sacrificial language. The blood of the slain and the fat of the mighty. And then he says it, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. In other words, because Jonathan, the heir, the heir to the throne was sacrificed in David's mind on Mount Gilboa, David can now resurrect and come into the land of of Israel and take up his kingdom. And Jesus, of course, represents them both. Because he died on the cross, he was raised, he came into his kingdom, but bringing you and uh, us exiles back west into the presence of God again, see. He calls us in the New Testament, Paul picks up on this, because in the New Testament he says, not only this, you're fellow heirs with him. Paul's thinking of the whole story. You were cast out, Jesus is the greater than Jonathan that was sacrificed, he's the greater than David that was raised, and he's bringing you with him, just like David comes into Hebron with all of his men, and they settle back in the land. All of these criminals and Uh, you know, rough characters that David's been traveling around with, he brings them back, they settle in the land of Israel, and David takes up the king. And now, there's this gradual gain of the kingdom. Do you see how how it all matches? It's not coincidence, it's very intentional. The Bible is the most interwoven, folded in on itself, ancient book in the world. 
And this is, you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. Secular scholarship will tell you the same thing. We have no ancient book like the, like the Bible. <clears throat> so, David, like Jesus, is first of all surrendered. He says, I'm not going to manipulate. Would you have me go up? That is our, as we wage this war, can that be our posture? What is it right now that you need to let go and surrender? What are things that you're trying to manipulate? Really, I mean, be honest. Have a time where you can actually face maybe some foul play in your motives. Maybe it's mixed with good motives, but also some foul play. What is it in our lives that we need to say, how can we do this every day? Shall I go up? What should I do? Tell me. What are the things, that, what are the seats that you want to sit on or the kingdoms that you want to take up and you're just tempted to rush, to rush it? There's a vacancy and you're tempted to get in there. Can you go, whoop, and surrender? How can you do that? Only by knowing that God is in control of your life, that he knows what's best for you by truly believing in his love. Secondly, notice this though. David surrendered, but he's also politically savvy. He's making some very smart, wise moves. Um, for example, his first move as king is to exalt and reward the men of Jabesh Gilead. You want to know why? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But one of the more interesting reasons is did you know that Saul's first act as king was to save the men of Jabesh Gilead. This is 1 Samuel chapter 11. For Saul's first act as king, he heard that the men of Jabesh Gilead were in trouble, they were being abused, and he amasses an army and he goes and saves them. And because of that, because of his kindness to them, the men of Jabesh Gilead feel a duty bound to go into Philistine territory and recover the body of Saul and his son and give him a proper burial. So they risk their own lives and they go in there. And so David's first act as king, it's really wise because they're of the tribe, they're, they're, they belong to, the, um, to Israel. He goes in and he commends them. Any other regime, this would be a threat to the kingdom. It'd be tempted for a king, tempting for a king to destroy the men of Jabesh Gilead to squash them out for exalting this former regime and this former... But David doesn't do that. He says, no, I'm going to join you. It was a very wise move to say that I am not rejoicing over Saul's death. I came by the throne honestly. And then, if you notice at the end, he, he tries to get their loyalty. He says, come over to me. The men of Judah have anointed me king. In, in my own words, this is not, you know, my paraphrase, it makes sense that you come over with me. I'm with you. Be with me. He's trying to unite the kingdom. It shows that David knows he's destined for more than Judah. So on the one hand, he's surrendered, but on the other hand, he's being really wise. He's still got his mind on where he knows his kingdom should go. It's meant to grow. And he invites them. He doesn't tell them. He doesn't um, force them. He doesn't bribe them. He invites them. He commends them and he invites them. He's very wise. Um, when it comes to you and I in this time of war that we're in, 
I think of the term in the New Testament where Paul encourages us to be wise as serpents and yet gentle as doves. Wise and yet surrendered. Savvy, strategic even. Aware of what's going on. He's also, but notice, this is what balances it out. David is supremely kind. Here's this word that I want to focus in on here. Let me read it to you. Here's what he says to these guys. When they told David it was the men of Jabeth-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabeth-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. I think the word loyalty might even be said there. Yes, it is. The word loyalty is chesed, and I think some of your translations will just say loving kindness. Because of the loving kindness that Saul, your Lord, uh, you buried him, may the, uh, now may the Lord show, here's that word, steadfast love, chesed, to you. In other words, may divine chesed be met by your, uh, be, or touch your chesed for, for Saul. Um, and I will do good to you, and now I'm going to do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over, over. In other words, I'm a kingdom of kindness. Um, the word chesed um, literally means love without limits or without conditions. That's what it means. Love without limits and without conditions. We are to be marked by surrender, Lord, it's up to you, but by wisdom. We're not called as Christians to have our heads in the sand. We're not called to know, we're, we're called to know what's going on in our city, in our neighborhood, in our nation, in our world. And we're called to live wisely, shrewdly, stewarding that. But we're also <clears throat> called to live it with kindness. The word is all throughout the text, and it even goes into chapter 3. In fact, we learn that kindness actually ends up winning over David's enemies. Abner, when Ishbosheth is not kind to him, he says this rude thing to him. Abner uses the word chesed. He says, I've been loyal to you without limits and without conditions. And he realizes that David's regime is that way. And he decides, okay, I'm going to go over there. And I'm going to help bridge the gap. I'm going to bring more people. I'm going to actually bring peace and reconciliation. I was the instigator of the division. But now because of this kindness and because I'm seeing Ishbosheth for what he really is, I'm going to use my loyalty and my, good, my networking skills, my position as a general to bridge the gap and bring reconciliation to, to this kingdom. Kindness, love, wins the day. Paul says to us that God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. And then he says, and he's given us. So kindness begets kindness it trickles down like a like a fountain he's given us the ministry of reconciliation christians are to 
bridge the gap, to bring, to, to beg the world, be reconciled to God. How do you know you can be reconciled to God? Because he was, he was kind to me. I was exiled. I was out in the wilderness. And God brought me back to life with him. He died and gave himself up and came and got me and brought me back into the land. And I know he'll do the same for you. Kindness brings kindness. You know, and, and the reality is, this is Christianity to its core is a heart issue. There are only volunteers. That means that the power of the kingdom of God is not done in just accomplishing a task, but the way and quality by which we accomplish that task. In other words, we could, here's the difference between task and power. You guys could go out from here and you could say what you believe in your mind to somebody. God forgives you and he's kind and he has everlasting kindness without love and without conditions. You can say that. But to the degree that you believe it for yourself, to the degree that you are touched by it yourself, the quality of that, impa- of that message will go up exponentially. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's one thing to say something that you intellectually believe. It's another thing to report something with a passion and a vigor because you have been consumed by it. That is where Christianity is going. I can't ask you to do something. Otherwise, you'll go out for a sense of duty. And it'll be manipulative. And people can tell. You know, when another religious body comes to your door and you open the door and they hand you a pamphlet or they say something that, you know, there's two of them, they might have a name tag or they might have a really beautifully art, um, you know, really nicely done pamphlet. You know, they have to be there. They have to be there. They have to stand out. I mean, there's a manipulation to it. It gets them higher up the chain. It helps them climb. It makes them feel closer to God. There is a fear or a manipulation, a shame versus honor. It's kind of a situation going on. And we can feel it. We can tell. Versus someone who really believes Someone that has the smoke of hell still on them. I was snatched from the fire by love and by kindness. If he can come for me, he's coming for you. And I got no skin in the game. I'm good whether you come or not. Open invitation. What is that? That's surrender. Remember John chapter 6? where Jesus' followers, hundreds of them, decide not to follow him anymore. He said some really difficult stuff. And I always remember the verse because it's an easy one to remember. It's John chapter 6, verse 66. <laughs> 666. But it just helps me remember. It says, at that, from that point forward, people stopped following him. Remember that? And what you do not read after that is Jesus saying, but wait, let me explain. What I really meant was, no, that, not like that. He, let, he, sur- he lets them go. And then he turns to the 12 and he says, are you guys going to go too? 
And you remember their famous, this is the, the, the response of every true Christian living at war. I'm still confused. I don't have the answers. Life's hard. I'm experiencing losses. I love you, but boy, you confuse me and sometimes even frustrate me. But where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. That is, is that not an honest Christian confession? Yesterday at my friend's funeral, I, could, I had no answers. I could not, well, you know, we had to sit in the confusion. When we met each other and we talked with each other at the funeral, the, the overwhelming response, every person I would talk to was like, That was it. What else can you just... I don't get it. I don't get it. And I say, Lord, I don't get you, but I know what the answer is not. It's not that you don't love us. Because you hung on that cross. Where else can I go? I may not know what the answer is, but I know what it isn't. It's not that you don't love us. You hung on that cross, so where else can I go? I'll go to church tomorrow and I'm going to lead worship and I'm going to teach because I love you and I don't get you, but I love you and you've got my life. You've got me. Where else can I go? Why? Because of the theology of a thing? No. I mean, that's, I mean there is some deep... Christianity is... Philosophically coherent, it is an intelligent religion, it is a, it's got all that stuff, but that's not what keeps me coming. Jesus had me with chesed. I remember the day he said, Mike, I love you without conditions and without limits. And boy, have I tested him on that. Boy, have I brought him. I said, well, challenge accepted, we'll see. And he's always there. That's what's got me. Yeah, I love the intellectual stuff. I do. I mean, obviously, I love it. But what keeps me coming back to this pulpit and back to this altar is chesed, the kindness of, my, of, of the son of David. He's a kingdom of kindness, and that's what wins. It's kindness. And finally, you guys, this is kind of encouraging, but also it just is, time it took David seven years to become king. And, and more than that, if you count the wilderness before that. But by the time he was anointed king of Judah to the time that he was anointed king of Israel, seven years of war. Listen, in your confusion and in your wilderness and in your fight, God is bringing fruition. He's bringing it all to fruition. He's fulfilling it, but it takes time. This is another reoccurring theme. Israel, out of Egypt, went through the wilderness for 40 years. Time. Before that, Moses, before he became the leader, was out watching sheep for 40 years. Then God called him. Wait is a big thing. And boy, nothing refines our character much like that. And boy, nothing goes against our culture much like that. Our culture is now, instant, right now. I want patience now. I want, you know, I want, I want character now. 
I want to be done with this issue in my life now. I was telling folks today, boy, if if they made a drink, I don't care how gross it would be, if they made a drink that if I chugged it, it got rid of my problems, I would go down to Walmart and buy it, and I would chug, chug that thing down for the, now, but that time, time, time is doing something. God is using it. So what do we do in the, in the meantime? Surrender. What do we need to surrender today? Be wise. My favorite theologian, John Wayne, he says, life is hard. It's even harder when you're stupid. He's so right. Be wise. Be wise. And thirdly, just enjoy his chesed so that you will naturally give it. We all know when it's contrived. The world knows when it's contrived. So the key is not to go out there and be kind. It is to enjoy his kindness, revel in his kindness, marinate in the kindness of God, and then you just will to the degree that you believe it. One of my favorite uh, authors, Henry Nouwen, said very few people and very few Christians actually believe that they are loved without limit and without conditions. Think about that. Very few Christians actually believe that they are loved without limits and without conditions. What if we believed it? Do you think the potency and power of the church would crank up if we actually believed that we were loved without conditions and without limits and we enjoyed it and soaked in it? Oh, you bet. It's freedom. Amen.